If you are new with us today, my name is Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here at Church on Mill. We have been going through a book in the Bible called Esther. So if you would like to turn with me there, that would be terrific. We're going to continue that uh, journey today. If you do not have a Bible, there are uh, free Bibles at the back in the coffee bar on the left-hand side. You are welcome to pick one of those up and take it with you if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures. Just by way of review, as you are uh, turning there, through our study of this old book, this book of Esther, we're seeking to do two primary things. One is to answer this question, to find it practical in daily life. How do we see God at work when He doesn't seem to be doing anything? Day in and day out, we live our lives, and many times we go through entire days or weeks, maybe even months, where really, if we're honest, we would say we don't really see the active hand of God at work. And yet the scriptures tell us that he is. So how do we see him when we can't see him? Well, the book of Esther is really helpful in that question because in a direct way, God never shows up in the entire book of Esther. And yet the book is written in such a way that we're supposed to see the unseen sovereign, the invisible hand of God at work. And so we're seeking to discover that. And then secondly, we're looking for how are we like the characters in the story? How do we find ourselves tripped up in the same kinds of things? There's a great temptation when we read the Bible to, whoops, there's a great temptation when we read the Bible to say, well, if I'm good like those people, then I'll receive good things from God. And if I'm bad like those people, then I'll receive bad things from God. But that's not at all the way the Bible's designed to be read. Instead, we're supposed to see Everybody is messed up and everybody's in need of Jesus. And so how do these characters help shine light on my own tendencies and weaknesses and help point me back to God? So I hope as we're going through the story that that's uh, what we're finding. What we're going to see today in the story is going to drive us back to where we started, to those questions of the first week. Why is the silence of God somehow deafening? Does God even exist? Are the scriptures true? If God is real, is he really powerful? Is he trustworthy? Is he good? If he's all-powerful and all-knowing and all-present and all-wise, then why do we live so many days without honestly seeing him do anything? Is there any sense at all that we can personally say, I can count on God? How do we count on God when he doesn't seem to do what we think he's going to do? Why does he seem the quietest when we need him the most? As we press in further into the story, we're going to see some of those things today. I hope as we do this that you'll ask yourself, that you'll ask God, help me discern my own heart. To what degree have these kinds of questions stunted my growth in the faith? To what degree are they preventing me from even saying yes to God initially, to becoming a follower of God? Will you consider admitting those things to someone and seeking their help? To what degree do the conversations I have with my church family encourage faith in God and confidence in God? And to what degree do they discourage them? To what degree has suffering and confusion led me towards hard-heartedness? All of those questions are going to be addressed in what we find today and in the subsequent weeks in this story of Esther. So, so far we've... We've had a selfish, evil king 
who's the most powerful man on the planet at the time. We've had a disposed queen. We've had a bachelor Persia, a stunningly beautiful new queen who keeps her ethnicity and religion hidden in a sinful way. And we've had an adopted father who chose to do nothing to protect her. That's not what you think of when you think of Scripture, correct? But all of that's in there. And today the story's going to get even messier. Although this king, the king of Persia, could serve as the protagonist or the villain in the story, today we'll come up with the real villain. His name, if you've read it before, is Haman. But before we get to Haman, we've got to set the stage. So Esther chapter 2, verse 19. If you have scripture, look with me there. If not, it'll be on the screens behind me. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people. In other words, she kept her ethnicity and faith hidden. As Mordecai, who's her adopted father, had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh... These are the original WWF champions. <laughs> Big Than and Terrace, two of the king's eunuchs, ask your mom what that means over lunch, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Asherus. What in the world is going on here? Well, briefly, let me try to paint the picture. If you had a chance to simply stay quiet to not do anything, and someone who hurt you greatly would meet peril, what would you do? If you had the opportunity to not do anything actively, but simply to passively do nothing, and someone who had done you great harm would have life come full circle, what would you do? Well, that's the situation that Mordecai faced. Maybe for you, this is a former spouse or a former boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe it's a previous or current roommate. Maybe your parents. Maybe a coach or teacher. Maybe your former BFF. Someone who really hurt you. Not some minor little thing, but a substantial hardship. If you had the chance to do nothing and the score would get even. Honestly. This is rhetorical. You don't have to shout it out. What would you do? Well, surely Mordecai had an issue with King Asherus, right? Why? Well, this king was a disgusting man who had slept with hundreds of women. And he took the virginity of his adopted daughter. Certainly, if this man had any heart, that was painful to him. If he had any kind of love and compassion for his adopted daughter, he would have had issue with this man. Correct? And so he's faced with this question. The king has a plot on his head. And if I do nothing, it might succeed. And maybe, just maybe, that's God's way of getting back at this man. Can you see him thinking those things? Do you find yourself thinking the same kinds of things? Maybe God would have me not say anything and -and so-and-so will get 
hit by a bus and I will praise and glorify God for that glorious thing. Right? But Mordecai did the unthinkable. Here's what he did. Verse 22. This knowledge, this plot to take the life of the king, this knowledge came to Mordecai and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. Now, when you picture hanged on the gallows, what do you think of? A western, right? They are standing on a platform, noose around the neck, the platform drops, the neck gets snapped, or they suffocate, and everybody grossly stares and goes home. It's funny how we think they grossly stare, and then we watch the movies over and over and over. That's not hanging on the gallows for the Persians. For the Persians, hanging on the gallows is impaling on a stake so that they can rot in public and the birds can come eat them. So, it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. The book of Esther brings up all sorts of hard questions. Should a Jewish man help save a wicked king who called himself king of kings and lord of lords? Is that what God would have him do? That's a tricky question, isn't it? Please don't read the Bible as a pious, religious know-it-all. Read it for what it really is. A shocking story that brings up really tough questions that must be answered in the context of the community of faith. Well, several hundred years after Mordecai did this, he saved the king, Jesus came along. And Jesus said this, Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was the common religious thought of his day. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He, that's God, makes His Son rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward is that? Do you not even the tax collectors and sinners do the same? And if you greet only those who are your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? For even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Christians, God calls us to radical self-sacrifice for the good of others. To do what Mordecai did. To do good to those even that harm us. Christianity has gone through several periods of time historically where it has been especially powerful and fruitful and effective in the broader community. And those periods of time, without exception, have been marked by Christians doing good even to those around them who are not doing good to them, doing good to those who hate them. Now, I'm wired, if you're around here much, you know this, I'm I'm wired as a skeptic. I do not take things simply because my mama told me so. And this brings up 
a lot of questions in my mind. The only way Jesus' command makes sense, the only way we could say, yeah, Jesus meant that and it's true and I ought to do it, is if we consider it in light of the whole biblical story. Because you see, we were enemies of God. Our sin made us hostile towards Him. And so God was wrathful towards us. We were His enemies, but the gospel changes everything. The hostility that God had towards us has been exchanged for His love and grace towards us. Jesus took the wrath for our sin so that we would no longer be the enemies of God, but the very sons and daughters of God. Isn't that great news? That no matter how messy your past is, it can be forgiven by God, a God who sees it all and knows the depths of it even more than we do. And yet He has lovingly accepted us. Friends, it's that kind of shocking, unconditional, tremendous love that calls us to extend the same to others. So God is not calling us to something He has not done. Instead, He's simply saying, do as I have done. As I have loved you and forgiven you, now you have the strength and power and experience through which to offer that to others. I wonder who in your life has sinned against you, maybe even recently, and God is calling you to be a Mordecai, to extend the same kind of grace and love that you have received. Now at this point in the story, we would expect something really great for Mordecai, correct? He saved the life of the king. And the king knew that. This is no surprise. The king had it written down in his Evernote in order that it would be kept track of. Here's what has been done in order that good would be done for the king. And yet a really strange twist happens. Verse number 1 of chapter 3. After these things, King Ashurus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamidatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the other officials who were with him. Who's Haman? We don't know at this point. Why is he being promoted? We're not told that either. It's as though the writer is saying, Mordecai did this really great thing, and yet this other dude we know nothing about gets the glory. Verse 2, And all the king's servants who were with the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So they made known to him the people of Mordecai. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ashurus. Now if we were watching this on a movie... That last little line is where the music would have gotten dark and loud. Why? Because the queen is Jewish. 
And surely the king won't kill the queen, right? But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Pride is an absolutely fascinating thing. It manipulates and twists us unlike anything else. If you'd like to see and understand pride, Haman serves as an excellent specimen. He is exhibit A. The king promotes Haman, not Mordecai. We're not told why. Haman gets advancement. He gets not just advancement, he gets a throne above everybody else except the king. Tremendous prominence throughout the kingdom. And he's commanded the respect of people. He's essentially the number two guy in the world at this point. So Haman is now what we might call commander-in-chief or vice president or chief of all the generals. Now a spat arose between Haman and Mordecai. Mordecai won't bow, which don't read into that overtures of religion because they're not there. This is simply a sign of respect to somebody higher up in rank and authority than you. It is as though you're saluting a commanding officer. Many cultures, some of you in the room, are from cultures where people still bow. Many times you would bow to someone older than you. And Mordecai refused to do it. And this drove Haman absolutely nuts. It drove him nuts because he was a man absorbed with himself. That's what pride is. Pride is self-absorption. It is preoccupation with self. And it's massively irrational. Think about that with me for a moment, if you will. You are the number two person in the largest empire of the entire earth. And you're torqued up because one person won't bow to you. Is that rational? Does that even make sense? Exactly. (laughs) Pride makes us foolish. Pride is especially difficult to see and to root out and to deal with because it flies under the radar. And here's what I mean. Nobody says... Oops, I didn't mean to steal that. Or I didn't realize I was cheating on that test. Or if you're bitter and longing inside to be like somebody else, you're not unaware of that. No man has ever woke up in the morning and turned to see the woman next to him and thought, Oops, this is awkward. Sorry about last night. I thought you were my wife. You're well aware of the sin you commit. Correct? But pride... You don't usually see that. Pride flies under the radar. And pride enables and encourages and is the fertilizer for so many other sins. Friend, do you struggle with self-absorption? Is pride at work deep down inside of you? In the coming weeks of Esther, you will see that when pride dominates your life, It will be the very thing that comes to destroy you. It will destroy Haman. But for now, perhaps you can just quietly ask God, God, is there pride in my heart? Am I sowing the seeds to my own destruction and I don't realize it? Perhaps a better way of asking that is, 
God, where is pride in my heart? Because it's probably there. If pride is self-absorption and preoccupation with myself, then we would expect it to come out as arrogance. In other words, we would expect pride to look like superiority. When we typically think of pride, we imagine a person that thinks they are all that. Everything is about how awesome or powerful or beautiful or wealthy or popular or sexy or intelligent I am. In other words, when we think of pride, we think of Haman because that's the way that man was. That's the way his pride was displayed. It wasn't enough that everybody would bow to him except one. He was most concerned about that one. And when that one wouldn't do it, it wasn't enough just to say, well, I'm going to off that guy. He wanted to wipe out all of the people. But there's an equally destructive form of pride that doesn't look anything like that. This form of pride is what we might call inferiority. It is the polar opposite of superiority, but it is pride nonetheless. This kind of pride displays itself as inadequacy, as an unhealthy dependence upon the approval of others. If you are so wrapped up in your own insecurities and weaknesses and brokenness that you're a leech upon other people, then you're ever bit as prideful as the person with superiority. Superiority and inferiority look really different on the surface, but they turn out to be exactly the same, don't they? They're a mere inward bent. They are a lens through which you look at life primarily about self. Both are merely preoccupation with me. Me-ism is going to come at a steep price for Haman. And friends, if you leave it unchecked in your life, it will do the same. Pride leaves us foolish, far from the heart of God, genuinely joyless, and less productive for the kingdom of God. And on top of all of that, it is simply a way of life that doesn't make sense. C.S. Lewis put it perhaps better than anybody else. He said this, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or equally clever or equally good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Pride always comes at the hurt and expense of other people. There would not be pride if that wasn't true. So in what ways are you like Haman? In what way am I like Haman? Or in what way are we the antithesis, the inferiority kind of Haman? If you struggle with it, I would encourage you The gospel says that life doesn't have to be lived like that. The gospel invites us to a better way of life. Not only does that way of life honor and exalt and make much of God, but it turns out to make life more enjoyable for us and definitely for those around us. Your sense of worth and value, your okayness, if we could call it that, 
is actually found outside of you and independent of other people. It's found in Christ. It's found in His death and resurrection for you. Tim Keller calls it gospel humility. He says, true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. This is the freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. Isn't that a cool picture? The gospel brings down the arrogant because the arrogant see themselves in light of who God is. Friends, our very best is nothing before a holy God. But the gospel also brings up, builds up the inferior because it shows that unconditional love is found in Jesus. Only the gospel can do that. Only gospel can bring down those who need to be brought down and build up those who need to be built up. Christ's death and resurrection give all who submit themselves to Jesus the release of sin and a confidence properly placed in God. What would it be like if we as a church began or continued to a greater degree to to humiliate one another? That's not what I intended to say. To encourage humility in one another and build one another up and help each other not be arrogantly superior or arrogantly inferior. Wouldn't that be great? That's part of what the family of God is called to, is help each other see those blind spots and live out joy in a better way. Now, real quick, you probably noticed that Mordecai finally made a stand here, didn't he? So we mocked him last week, and it wouldn't be a sermon in Esther if we didn't do the same this week. I find Mordecai's actions in not bowing to Haman just as bothersome as his inaction last week. Here's why. He refused to bow to Haman. He's not going to do it. Mordecai would give his adopted daughter over to the king for the bachelor of Persia. And the only thing he said was, keep your heritage and your religion quiet. Keep it private. Because maybe you might win. So he said nothing. Complete passivity. But now, when it directly affects him, when his pride is on the line, then he takes his stand. That shows an enormous amount of pride in his life ever bit as much as Haman. Men, pride causes us to stand up for dumb things and to remain seated for the things that really matter. You don't have to look far to see it. In fact, you you only need to look in the mirror if you're anything like me. Because my tendency is to stand up to defend myself And yet when there is injustice, when there is ungodliness, when there is pain in people around me that I could do something about, my tendency is to remain quiet. That's what Mordecai did. 
So banish any sense that this is a, a strong man. This is not. This is a man like many of us. A weak man. A coward. A man who would send his adopted daughter to, in essence, be raped. And yet, when there was something that didn't sit right in him, for himself, then he stood up. Only Jesus and his strength in us can keep us from the same foolishness. But why did he do that? Well, really quickly, here's the background. We're told early in the story that Mordecai came from the tribe of Benjamin. And that probably means nothing to you unless you've spent a lot of time in the Scriptures. The tribe of Benjamin is the same tribe that Saul came from. Now that cleared it up too, right? Saul was the first king of Israel. And so that little insertion is telling us that Mordecai is in a long, long, long way back related to Saul. And the story also told us that Haman is a what? Agagite. Say that word to somebody sitting next to you. That's just a fun word. Agagite. There you go. Agagites. Uh, the Agagites came from a guy named Agag, who was a king. So Agagites came from Agag, and Benjamites came down from King Saul. Now, I know this has just made it crystal clear for you. Here's what's happening. The very first major people to pursue war and fighting with the Jews outside of Egypt were the Amalekites, which the king of Agag was the king of them. So what the author is telling us is there is a generational old hatred here between Haman and Mordecai, fighting that went on and on and on and on. So Yes, get this right. Mordecai won't bow because he's torqued about something that's generations old. And yet he'd send his daughter into what he sent her into. My dear friend, God so longs for us to stand up for things that really matter. To stand up for what's right. And we can do that in Christ. But apart from Him, we won't. And the world is desperately in need of men and women who will devote their lives to standing for the things that matter. And those things that are silly issues, that they'll stand aside. We need humility and a lack of pride to do that. Now quickly, let's round out our story for today. Verse 8. Then Haman said to King Asherus of chapter 3, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different for those of other people, and they don't keep the king's laws. So it's not in the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver. Just think a whole lot of money, an exorbitant amount of money. 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it in the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring in his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of the Amittatha, the enemy of the Jews. 
And the king said to Haman, The money's given to you, the people also, to do with it as seems good to you. Friends, if you are unprepared for it, nothing, nothing will test your faith like suffering. And a tremendous test has just fallen on the Jews. In one moment, they have been told, 11 months from now, you will all be killed. So think pre-Hitler, pre-Nazis. There was a moment in time when someone sought to completely wipe out these people, totally off the face of the earth. The most powerful man in the world with the largest army ever assembled has just cast his ring into the Holocaust. Can you imagine the fear and the dread? Well, the text describes it for us in verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to kill, destroy, annihilate all the Jews, young and old. So infant and the old lady who can't stand. Women and children. And one day on the 13th day of the 13th month, which is the month of Adair, and to plunder all their goods. A document, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province, all the proclamation of all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the capital. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. Isn't that a picture? The city of Susa was thrown into confusion. The hard-heartedness of people without God can can sign something saying, we're going to kill all of these people 11 months from now, so let's have a beer. Chapter 4, verse 3, And in every province, wherever the king's command and the decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with weeping and fasting and lamenting. Many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. The fear must have been horrific and all-consuming. The really ironic thing about this is the edict was written on the day before Passover and then it was disseminated on the day of Passover. So the same day the Jews would have been gathering to remember a great deliverance God had given them out of Egypt is the same day they hear word, we're all going to be killed. And we haven't seen God doing anything. Surely the questions came. God, are we not your people? Didn't you make promises to us? Are you not good? Do you not love me? Are you even real? If you're so powerful and mighty, why am I suffering? God, will you deliver us like we've heard you used to do, but we don't see anymore? Do you even care? Nothing will test your faith like suffering. When you hear the word cancer or the spouse says, I'm leaving or the teacher says, you've failed or the employer says, you're done or you get word on the phone that mom's gone. Aren't these the questions that we ask? Esther is in the Bible because it shows us that God is always at work. He is the unseen sovereign. 
His hand may at times be hard to see. His voice may be hard to hear. His ways may be confusing and even troubling. But God is always at work for His glory and for the good of His people. Next week, we'll begin to see how. Let's pray. God, what an old and strange story, and yet how easily applicable it is. The questions are the same. It's just that the circumstances are different. The issues are the same. It's just the trappings around them are different. The needs are the same. They just display themselves differently. Father, I pray today, starting with me and then continuing to everyone here, Christian or not, Church on Mill member or not, came planning to respond to you or not, I pray that you would bring down the superior among us. Build up, encourage, lift up those that struggle with inferiority. Not because we're great or we deserve either one of those things, but because you are a great God who is most glorified in us when we have responded to the gospel and are seeking to live obediently and are finding our joy in you. Convict us when we are arrogantly superior like Haman and when we are arrogantly weak and inferior like Mordecai. And I pray for all who are here today who are struggling in some kind, in some form, in some way with suffering. Father, may we be sensitive and so careful with one another in those moments. And maybe the questions that we're asking are, are new. The doubts that we have are new because this, the point of suffering is new. Or maybe it's been there a really long time. May we be people who are transparent with one another, who don't play church, who say, I've got the questions the people in Esther's day had and I don't seem to see God at work. Father, may we support and bless and care. And even if we have to crawl, may we bring one another to your feet. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In just a minute, we'll dismiss you. And if there's something today that you'd like to talk about, some of the staff and gospel community leaders will be here at the front. It'd be a real honor and privilege to pray with you. Or just grab somebody around you. Don't let the Lord's message to you go unexplored.